Over the last couple of weeks, we've been exploring what it means to choose joy. Philippians 4, 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, which means that we intentionally choose a life of joy. Now, the book of Philippians, it instructs us in what joy means, how to pursue it. And we discover that the secret to joy is to live as Christ, to make Jesus Christ your life. To be the thing that you pursue more than anything else is knowing Him and making Him known. But as we heard in today's passage, there's another dynamic to that joy. It's not just making Jesus our life, although if we do that, all the rest of the pieces will come together. But what Paul says is complete my joy in the way that you interact and love one another. So there's two dynamics that are incredibly important. If you want to experience a joy that is bigger than happiness, a joy that transcends circumstance, it begins by making Jesus Christ the focal point of everything that you are and all that you do. And that it's completed by our connection with one another. So let's look at these, this passage a little bit, and we're going to unpack it some today. And I hope that, um, I hope that the Lord will, will prompt us and work in our hearts. I know He's been bringing a lot of conviction into my own heart and life through this passage. He begins in verse 27 saying, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So we're to begin by examining to see if we are living worthy of the gospel. Now, one of the dangers of jumping into a passage in the middle of, of a thought like we're doing here is it's easy to forget what came before. What comes before is the understanding that Jesus is completing his work in us. And so the transformation of the gospel, of making us into something new, making us like him, is his work, not our work. But here Paul is saying, okay, Jesus is doing a work in you, but you need to examine to see if your life reflects the work he's completing. Does your life reflect the price that God paid for you? Do you treat your relationship with God as the most valuable thing you have ever been given, the greatest treasure in your heart and life? That's what it means to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, as I say that, I need to be really, really clear about one aspect of it. There is nothing that you or I could do to earn salvation. It is not us being worthy in and of ourselves, it is us recognizing what Jesus Christ has done and then allowing Him to transform our life to make it look like His, to change us. We are saved by grace. But oftentimes in our human nature, we tend to look at our performance and we try to measure our life based upon our performance apart from God. We try, in a sense, to earn out of our own goodness 
the approval of God. And the clear message of the scripture is that is not possible. It is his work and not ours. Deep down, most people believe if we're good enough, God will be pleased with us. They hope that God will grade on a scale because there must be people out there who are worse than me, and in fact, several come to mind, right? That's how we, that's how we function, all of us. It's built into us, but it is a false premise. God's measurement is complete, absolute purity and righteousness. He is not looking for someone who is less bad, okay? It's not very good English, but it's good theology. He is looking for someone who is totally, perfectly good. That's how God designed humanity in the beginning before we rebelled. And it was the requirement of that purity that allowed Adam and Eve and allows us into his presence. So we can't earn it on our own. Someone else had to do it for us. That's why the Bible is very clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us is righteous. No one understands or seeks for God. We've turned aside and become worthless. No one does good, not even one, apart from Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace, by what Jesus has done for us. But here's one of the things that's amazing. Grace means a free gift. But there's a great paradox in grace. One of the greatest mysteries in all of the universe is the cost of grace. Because grace cost Jesus Christ his life. He died on a cross, was buried, and rose again to purchase forgiveness and life for you and me. For us, grace is absolutely free because we can't do anything to earn it. But it cost Jesus Christ absolutely everything. The price had to be paid, and he chose to pay it. And so, therefore, we are saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. And what God asks us to do is not to try to make ourselves look better, but to simply say, Jesus, I'm a mess. There's nothing I can do that brings approval from you. So I cast everything that I am, I put the full weight of all my dependence upon Jesus Christ and him alone. I call upon him for salvation. And the promise of the scripture is when we do that, he saves us. And he not only saves us, the scripture tells he begins a good work in us of changing us, transforming us. And so now he's calling us to say, okay, now if you've accepted my gift and I am working in you, now I want you to examine your life to see if it's reflecting me. And the reason that I want you to do it is not because that will allow you into heaven, because that comes from the free gift of Christ. I want you to do it so you'll have joy. Do you understand that's the whole purpose? This is what we get so confused about. The reason why God calls us to obedience and to have our life be transformed is because he wants you to experience the fullness of his presence flowing in and out of your heart, your mind, your body, your life, your relationships, everything that you are. 
He wants you to have joy. So he calls us to examine ourselves, not to see if, we're, if we measure up on our own because we don't, but because he wants to fill us with joy. Now here what I, here's what I find incredibly interesting. Is that when he asks about whether or not when we examine our life, it's worthy of the gospel. He doesn't start with our morality. That's usually the first thing that comes to mind. If, if I was simply to ask you, and you were to answer honestly, what are the measurements that would determine whether or not you're living a life worthy of the gospel, chances are certain moral things or even certain sets of beliefs would be the answer that you would give. It's the way we're wired, because partly we're thinking of measuring up. But the reflection of what it means to live a life worthy here in the Scripture is radically different. It has everything to do with our relationship with one another. Isn't that interesting? This passage of Scripture is written by Paul in prison to perhaps his favorite church, a church that is a missional church, a church that has supported him and has remembered him and that is incredibly dear to his heart. And what he wants more than anything is for the believers at Philippi to be filled with joy, to experience God's presence in a way that transcends the struggles and the frustrations that they're going through. But we must ask ourselves, how valuable is our salvation to us? How do we treat it? I found in my own self that oftentimes I take God's salvation, I take the good news of the gospel of what Jesus did for granted. And I need to go back and give it the value it deserves. There's a difference between a pearl and a bead. They can look pretty similar. You can have a string of beads that look a lot like a string of pearls, but their value is very, very different. What makes a pearl valuable is a couple of things. Number one, it's something that is rare and difficult to get. But also, a pearl is valuable because of what it took to make it. In order to have a pearl, the oyster or the clam has to have something uh, invade its, its body. A contaminant, a piece of sand or dirt gets into it and becomes an irritant. And so what happens is, and God's design is, it's designed that, that oyster to secrete a fluid that begins to form around that impurity and cover it. And it builds up over time into this perfect, beautiful sphere that is pearlescent, that's the, the world, it, it reflects, even though it's white, it reflects these different colors of the rainbow as the light shines on it. But it's born out of suffering. And I think that's why Jesus, when he is using some of his illustrations, he talks about a pearl of great price. He talks about something that was, has great value that is worth giving everything that you are to invest in and to have, and he compares that to our salvation? Do we treasure this gift we've been given 
by remembering what it took for Jesus to purchase us back? Or do we treat it like something common? That's where he begins for us to ask that question. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear, and here's how he describes a life that is worthy of the gospel. I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So let's examine that. Here are some of the conditions. He says, this is what a life that reflects Jesus' presence and his good news looks like. It first of all looks like one who is faithful, who is standing firm, who is living out what they believe, not just in words, but in the deeds of their life. They're faithful and true. Secondly, it says, in one spirit. This means that we're united together. Now, when we understand the picture that's behind this, that we are the bride of Christ, it should make sense. But it's so easy for us to get focused in on being the church, and we think of this church versus that church, and this set of beliefs versus that set of beliefs or convictions, and it's easy for us to be fragmented. But Jesus Christ deserves a unified bride, not a schizophrenic one. Can you imagine living your life with a schizophrenic spouse? You kind of like with multiple personalities, you know, which one am I going to get today? Now, my wife experiences that to some degree because I have some strange personalities that come out every now and then, especially some strange accents that I try not to do from the pulpit because I would just offend a whole bunch of people in my attempts to do different accents, but I'm a little twisted, but she's learned to have grace and deal with that. But Jesus Christ deserves a bride that is unified. Yesterday, I had the privilege of doing a a wedding at the Mirror Chapel and it was a, a beautiful young couple, Peter and Vanessa, and one of the things that um, I do a lot as part of a wedding, this was part of Becky and I's wedding, is there's a passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 that says, two are better than one, for they have a good reward for their labor. If one falls down, the other can help them up. If one can be overpowered, two can resist. And, and it talks about this, this beauty of of relationship, of friendship in God's design, but then it ends with this simple little saying in Ecclesiastes, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. And it almost seems strange because he's talking about two, 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 and then he says a cord of three strands. Well, it's a picture of what our relationship is to be with one another, both as husband and wife and also as the bride of Christ. A cord gets its strength by how close its strands are to one another. If you're, if you're buying rope and you want to look up its tensile strength, how, how much pressure it can take, it is measured by the tightness of its strands. Therefore, the looser the strands, if I was to untwist this, the, the cord becomes weaker. But the more it is drawn together, the more strength it has. 
And what we have is a picture of this, is that God himself is the center strand, and we are to be intertwined around him so closely that we cannot be pulled apart. Now, it doesn't mean that I have to agree with absolutely everything that another believer says or, or what, they, what their uh, understandings are, but it means that I'm growing closer to Christ and they're growing closer to Christ, and the result is we become closer to one another. We become stronger. That's what he's talking about here in this passage. That unity is incredibly important to the heart of God. This is why Jesus Christ, before he goes to the cross, prays in the most intense moment of his life that we would be one as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one. Unity is huge. And he goes on and he says, not only are of one spirit whereas we're connected by the Holy Spirit's presence in our life. But we're to be of one mind. That means we're focused on the same things. What does Jesus Christ want? Not what do I want. And then it's not only in our thinking, it's in our labors. We're working side by side, striving, pouring out our energy in order to advance the gospel and promote the unity of the church and display who Jesus Christ is is and here's the great thing when that begins to happen when we become closer and closer to one another as the body of christ there is a boldness that results we look at the early church and we see the persecution that they endured and yet they were able to stand firm they did not give up their faith because the scripture describes them in Acts as being of one accord. They were together. The strands of their life were so tightly wrapped around one another and around the Lord that they had a boldness that overcame their fear. So here's the thing. If you're fearful about sharing your faith, about standing for your faith, Ask the Lord to increase your boldness, but also ask the Lord to deepen your love for the body of Christ. Because as we grow closer to one another, His strength permeates our lives and our relationships. And we're able to stand firm. It's a call to boldness, to not be ashamed to share our faith. And let me give you a really simple, practical way to begin spiritual conversations. I've used this periodically. I don't use it all the time, but when I'm struggling for a way to kind of begin to make a transition to a, to a spiritual conversation with, for, with someone, I simply ask them this question. Who's had the greatest impact on your life? Was it, if I were to ask anybody in this room, who's had the greatest impact on your life, would anybody be offended by that question? If you're to ask someone who is, who is an atheist and wants absolutely nothing to do with God, who's had the greatest impact on your life, they're not going to be offended. They may be confused and they may think it's a strange question, but if we ask that question with a genuine interest in our heart and then listen closely to what they say, they're sharing something that is very deep within them. And if we form a relationship with them and we come back and we ask about that person, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a coach, 
a teacher, someone who had a great influence in their life, and we ask more about, about that relationship and what made it so meaningful to them, we're taking an interest in who they are. And sooner or later, it will open up the door for us to be able to share the person who's had the greatest impact on my life. His name is Jesus. Because he took me, he saved me, he loved me, he transformed me. And my life is filled with joy because he's with me. And just as meaningful to me as Jesus is, and just, you know, you've told me about your friend. I would love for you to know God with the same kind of intimacy and have the same kind of impact on your life that your friend did. In fact, I believe it's going to be even greater. It's a way to open a door and allow us to be bold in a loving way. But then he goes on in Philippians. He not only says, be one, but then there's this incredibly confusing verse in the Scripture. Philippians 1.29 if we're dead honest, there are verses in the scripture that we would just assume weren't there, okay? If I could just like skip over this one, I, you know, I would be more comfortable. But here's what he says. For it has been granted to you. That means this is a gift. It has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. There is a joy that comes in entering into the sufferings of Jesus Christ that is deeper and sweeter than what makes any sense with our minds. Because it is there that we know him more deeply. I have found personally it has been in the seasons of grief, of brokenness, that I have become closer and closer to Jesus Christ. It is a gift. It's not one that we want or that we seek after because none of us like to suffer. But in reality, it can complete our joy. And that's what he's telling us here. I read this this week from Oswald Chambers and I thought it was so, so appropriate. It says, we tend to think that if Jesus Christ compels us to do something and we are obedient to him, he will lead us to great success. We should never have thought that our dreams of success are God's purpose for us. In fact, his purpose may be exactly the opposite. What he desires from me is that I see him walking on the sea with no shore no success, no goal in sight, but simply having the absolute certainty that everything is all right because I see him. It is in the process, not the outcome, that is glorifying to God. Therefore, God will allow us to go through seasons of difficulty and suffering not to punish us, but to purify us and to actually increase our capacity of joy, to be able to relate to him and know him more intimately. Now, remember, Paul is writing this in chains. 
And in a short period of time, he's going to be executed. So he's not writing this as this, this is just a theory. It is something that he is living. And he's already been through circumstance after circumstance where he's been shipwrecked and beaten, stoned. And he says, suffering is a gift. When we understand that it is designed to draw us closer to God and deeper into our relationship. When we see Jesus in the middle of the waves, in the storms of our life, our trust is placed in him alone and not in ourselves or in our success or in our performance, but rather in his purpose. From a human standpoint, Paul was a failure. He's in prison, nearly forgotten by man, but he looked more and more like Jesus Christ through his suffering. As he matured in his faith, he reflected Jesus more and more. Jesus was lifted up. But we live in a world where success is worshiped, even in the church. We think that bigger is better, but God desires us to choose joy even in the middle of suffering, for that brings him honor and allows us to be used mightily for his fame and not for our own. Because you see, the suffering is for his sake. It's not just, it's not punishment. It is a suffering that brings him honor. Because perhaps the greatest danger for us as Christians is to become too comfortable. When I become comfortable, I become self-sufficient. I begin to rest in what I think I have earned or I deserve rather than keep my reliance fully upon Jesus Christ. But in this aspect of it, there is also a call for us, again, to draw those strands together and to stand with those who are suffering. We are so privileged where we live and for many of us where we come from, although that's not true for all of us. We have great freedom in our worship, great freedom to proclaim the name of Christ, whereas other believers in different parts and regions of the world are suffering greatly for their, for their faith. How would God call us to stand with those who are suffering, to become partners with them, to wrap our lives around theirs? I want to ask you to pray about that. Pray that the Lord would show us what he would call us as ICP to do in standing with those who are suffering. They may be in the Middle East. They may be in, uh, like with the Waldrops in Turkey, with the great unrest that's happening right there. Maybe in Africa, there are more people, more churches that are destroyed every day in Africa than anywhere else on the planet right now. And maybe God would call us to stand with believers in South Sudan or northern Uganda or in Congo. But to enter into a fellowship of suffering with other believers for joy. I know it sounds crazy, but it's true. I can tell you that some of the most joyous experiences of my own, own walk with Christ have been with those who were deeply persecuted. Seeing those who were suffering for their faith, who had lost loved ones, deepened my own understanding of how valuable salvation is. 
and it will for all of us. Now, one of the things as I was looking through this passage that really stood out to me is that there's a background to the book of Philippians, and it's the Beatitudes. You can see the blessed are statements of Jesus as a foundation underneath everything that's being written. I mean, think about what Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, and we're going to look here and, and show you some other comparisons of things that, that happen in here. But everything he's saying about us being one, about us standing firm, it finds its foundation in the statements of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And so to encounter real joy um, in a life worthy of the gospel, he tells us this in chapter 2, verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. In essence, he's saying, if you want these components in your life, if you want encouragement, if you want real comfort, if you want real love, um, if you want real partnership in the Spirit and affection, then here's the things that we're to do. We're to be unified together as a body of believers, and we're to pursue the exact same things that Jesus taught. Let me just review them really, really quickly, because Paul is exhorting the church to find what they're looking for. He wants them to have joy, and it comes from Jesus when we choose to rejoice in all our circumstances. So if we desire joy, if we desire that inner tranquility within our own heart and life, we are to become like Jesus. It is found only in Christ. Just as he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That's what joy is. It's a contentment and a satisfaction, a sense of being full no matter what's happening on the outside. If we desire comfort, we're to pursue love for God and others. Just as he said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We are to be actively engaged in being a joy bringer to those who weep. That means that we weep with them. We stand with them. We grieve with them. And we ask the Lord to allow us to be his presence in their life, in their time of sorrow. If we desire the Spirit's power and presence, we are to obey the Spirit promptly. There's a peaceful joy that comes from obedience. That's why God asks us to obey Him. He's not trying to um, force us into conforming. He commands us to obey because it is what is best for us and is what is most fulfilling. He seeks our highest good. That's why Matthew 5, verse 8, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. See, if we understand that our obedience, our becoming pure, our taking the areas of our life where we're out of alignment with God's word and, and we turn from it and we say, Lord, I, I want to be pure. The promise is we see him for who he really is. And there's no greater joy in life than having God's presence, being able to see who he is and what he's like and experience in our own, our own life. He says, if you desire affection, practice compassion 
Just like it says in Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. If we desire to be like Christ, we are to enter into his mission. We're to be partners in the gospel, in the good news. Or as Jesus put it, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called, what? The sons of God. That's our inheritance is that we become like Jesus Christ, joint heirs with him as we engage together in his mission. And we feel the pleasure of God flowing in and through our life. It's an incredible blessing. So he calls us to engage in a life that is worthy of the gospel. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing of rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. God calls us to promote one another, to champion one another. Church, that's what God uses to make his bride complete. When you and I choose to look around at one another and not see the faults and the failings, because we all have plenty of them, but instead to see what is God doing in their heart and life, where is a reflection of Christ that I see in their life that, Lord, I can speak a word of encouragement that I can build up, that I can encourage them to take a step of boldness and to do something that maybe they, that there's a desire inside, but they've been timid about trying or attempting. Become champions of promoting one another. Believe in each other, not because any of us deserve it, but because Christ does. And he has called us to be one in him, to prefer and consider others as more significant than ourselves. Do you realize how liberating that is? Because here's what happens. Oftentimes, we go through life wondering, what do other people think about me? Whether or not I'm going to measure up to their expectations. And that is a deceit of the enemy. Because you'll never measure up. None of us will ever be good enough. Or if we're good enough, it'll only be for a season and then we'll make a mistake. Or guess what? Somebody who's more impressive will come along and we begin to diminish in the eyes of others. It is not how we are meant to live. Our identity, our security is in who Jesus Christ says we are. And this is what he says about each and every one of you who have placed your trust in him. You are a saint. In fact, you need to say that. I am a saint. Say it like you mean it. I am a saint. Not because we deserve it, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. And because that's who I am, that's now how I want to live. I want to make the reality of who he made me be become the conduct of my life. That's what Paul's calling us to. And why does he do it? So you have joy. No matter what you're going through, he wants to have joy. To live worthy, we have the same mind. 
We have one love, a love for God that motivates all we do that is expressed in a love for one another. To live worthy, we must be of one accord, full harmony with other believers. And I love that, I love that word, accord, because it really is a musical term. Just like you heard in worship earlier, there were harmonies that were being sung. It wasn't all exactly the same, but because they were focused in on the same key, they were in sync, and it made it more beautiful. That's what the church is to be. That's what our lives are to be. That's why the body is so important. To live worthy, we promote others above ourselves. To live worthy, we put away competition and conceit. We make sure that our conversation helps to build faithfulness and not instill fear. Do I show compassion or competition? And ultimately, to live worthy, we must be humble. In fact, that is the key. Because to live as Christ begins with the realization it's not about me. That is the hardest lesson, isn't it? We have to continually remind, at least I have to continually remind myself, it's not about me at all. Humility looks to see and understand it is about Jesus Christ and the work that he is doing. Because humility opens up our heart to receive God's grace. And then grace is given to us to enable us to obey God and to live above our sinful nature. Humility humility trusts in God and sets us free from sin and from fear because true humility is total dependence on God and zero dependence on ourselves. There's a great contrast between pride and humility. Let me give you some of these. These come from a great book by Nancy DeMoss on brokenness. It says this, proud people focus on the failures of others and can readily point out their faults. Humble people are more conscious of their own spiritual need than the faults of others. Proud people tend to be critical in their spirit, but humble people encourage, build up, and they guard against gossip that would injure others. Proud people have to prove that they are right and they need the last word. But humble people yield their rights to the Lord and surrender them. Proud people worry more about what others think of them, but humble people focus on what God thinks of them. Proud people expect others to come and ask for forgiveness when there is a misunderstanding or a breach in a relationship. But humble people take the initiative and they own their fault so that they can be reconciled no matter how great the offense. Proud people desire to be known as a success. Humble people are motivated to be faithful and to promote the success of others. Proud people are sorry they got caught. Humble people are truly repentant over their sin. And the evidence that repentance is real is that they forsake it, they turn away from it, and they seek reconciliation. If I read through the whole list, I have to confess, I find myself far more often in the proud column than in the humble column. 
But God's not done with me yet. And he's not done with you either. He will complete his work in us. Now the passage goes on, and we're going to look at this, the, the description that we have next week. It goes on to describe what Jesus Christ did for us, the God of the universe who humbled himself, who stepped out of the glories of heaven that he totally deserved and humbled himself to enter into our brokenness, to be, as we sang earlier, our remedy. Now, why is Paul writing this? What is, what is the motivation where he's making such an emphasis on us being humble and being drawn closer together in our love for one another as a church? Well, we discover in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, that there's a problem at the church of Philippi. Now, in the letters that we have to the churches, virtually all of them have struggles. There's areas of disobedience. There's areas where their belief is, is out of alignment with God's word. But here in Philippi, it comes down to a spat between two women. Philippians 4. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat sympathy to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And I love how Paul handles this. He doesn't tell us what the problem was. He builds them up. He says, I believe in Yodia and I believe in Synthesis. They are my partners in the gospel. But for some reason, there's a division between them. And here's what I'm asking. Because we are the bride of Christ, and because I want your joy to be full, I want you to agree. I want you to lay down yourself for the other out of love for Christ. He's writing that for some very practical reasons because there's a dispute. Who knows what it's over? It doesn't matter. Whatever the disagreement is, it does not compare to the value that we have because of the gift of grace and salvation that God has given us. We are to agree. This is why it's so important. And then it goes on, and back in chapter 2, it talks about Jesus, and it talks about our inheritance. Because you see, he's giving the example of what Jesus is like because we are to become more and more like him. And, and he talks about how Jesus is going to be lifted up. And guess what? He's promised us to become joint heirs with Christ. We are to humble ourselves in the eyes of the Lord, and he will lift us up. That's his promise. When we pursue to become like Christ in his humility, he promises us an inheritance of becoming like Christ. And it's beautiful. This is the reason we can take joy even in suffering. Is because if that suffering makes me more like Jesus Christ, I become ultimately more and more who I was created to be. David in Psalm 17, I'm going to close with this, has a beautiful, beautiful prayer to the Lord. 
In Psalm 17, he begins and, and he asks the Lord, he says, Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. And he goes on and he describes um, a conflict that he's going through and how people are are against him. And, And he's crying out to the Lord. He's putting his trust completely in the Lord. And he asks the Lord in verse 8, he says, keep me as the apple of your eye. Have you ever considered yourself as the apple of God's eye? You are. He loved you enough to pay the ultimate price for you. He says, you're precious. You're loved. You're chosen. I even like you. I mean, how cool is that? That's what it's, when he says, you're the apple of my eye, it means you're my favorite. And it's not just David, because God is a God whose heart is big enough that every one of his children is his absolute favorite. So don't dare compare yourself to someone else. God has chosen you as the apple of his eye. Well, he goes on in the psalm, and he asks for God to do some work, and then he says, he says about the success of the wicked, and he contrasts it with this verse. Verse 15, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Here in the Old Testament, one of the things that made David a man after God's own heart is he understood that satisfaction, that joy came from being made like God by his work. And he's talking about the resurrection when he says, when I awake, I'm not going to care that I was king. I'm not going to care about the successes that I had in this life. I'm not going to care about the victories and the battles that I won or lost. The one thing I am going to be focused on is that you have transformed me. And now I look like the Savior. I wake in your likeness. That was the joy of his heart, and it is ours as well. This is a theme all the way through Scripture. In the Old Testament, in the Gospels, in the letters, when Christ is our life and we allow him to transform us, we are filled with joy and we become like him. Is that the desire of your heart? If not, would you be willing to ask God, Lord, would you make that my desire? I want to know you in that way, and I want to make you known so that others can experience the joy of your presence that overflows and transcends no matter what circumstance they're in. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of life. Thank you for the incredible gift of salvation that has rescued us from sin, and thank you for the joy that you offer us when we choose to make you our life and to live in harmony with one another, to build one another up, and to ask you to complete your work in us. Lord, help us to fight for joy, to not be satisfied with the pleasures of this world, 
but Lord, to long for something far deeper, far more satisfying, to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. Thank you for your work in us. Lord, I pray for each person here. There are some in this room that do not yet know you as Savior. Lord, would you call them to yourself this day? Would you enable them to simply call in the name of the Lord and say, Jesus, I don't measure up. I'm not perfect. I need you. Would you save me? It's as simple as that. Lord, would you save people today for your name's sake and for their good and for their joy? And Lord, for the rest of us, Lord, would you pull away the things that we cling to so tenaciously and give us a desire to be more like you, a desire to make you our life. We choose this day to rejoice. We choose to praise and exalt you because you are a great and mighty God. We give ourselves to you this day. Have your way in us, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.